it's my pleasure to introduce, uh, well, Jill, but Stuart's here as well. I'd like to welcome them to Hope Church. They're dear friends of my wife and I. Um, actually, both of us grew up spiritually at uh, the church that uh, Stuart was a st- senior pastor at, and uh, Jill was very involved as well, especially with the women's ministry. It's exciting to have them here. They've kind of followed us around the world when we've been in China and other places. They've uh, come and spoken, and so we're excited to invite them to this special place so that you could hear from them. Uh, they're inter- they have an international ministry, and uh, they've done a lot of writing. And I always ask Jill whenever I see her how many books she's written. And today she said, well, I thought it was 60, but then somebody said it was 120. So... Somewhere between 60 and 120. A lot of books, anyway. A whole lot more than I'll ever write. I know that. So we're excited to have them here. Would you please welcome Jill Briscoe. Well, it's a great joy to be here and see our dear friends again. And what a wonderful, wonderful ride here. We came from Chicago, actually, even though we live in Wisconsin because our daughter has uh, two boys at Wheaton and they were playing soccer and we wanted to watch them last night. And I had no idea that beautiful drive from Chicago I think would be prettier than the one if we'd come from Madison down that way. But it's just gorgeous here and we've never been in this area before. Just talking a little bit so you get used to my accent, as you would say. Actually, this is English and (laughs) hopefully... But we've been here in the States 42 years, and uh, so we have been uh, around a long time. Look at me, I'm very old. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But it's funny, you never know it. When you get as old as me, I'm 78. Um, I fell in the parking lot, my famous story, in the winter in Wisconsin after church one night. And Stuart and I were leaving late. I had my hands full of bags and Bibles and things and uh, was running across the parking lot, black ice. My feet went from under me and I went backwards and knocked myself out. And there was only me and Stuart and one young man in the parking lot. And so I come to and my husband, who is not attached to the satellite as the youth of our world is or are, Um, was wondering what to do about his wife lying in the snow. But fortunately, the other young man was attached from every hole in his head to all the satellites. (laughs) And I came to hearing him say, an elderly lady has just fallen in the parking lot. And I thought, how amazing, someone else has fallen just at the same time as me. Never occurred to me he was talking about me, which would mean an elderly lady. But, um, right. Outwardly, we are certainly wasting away, as Paul says, but inwardly, in our interior life with God, we are being renewed day by day by day by day. And Stuart and I are enjoying that part of getting old, not the outward bit, but we're enjoying the inward bit, where we seem to get younger day by day. I want to talk about a very familiar part of scripture for many reasons. I want to talk about the 23rd Psalm. One reason is whenever I talk about a very familiar part of scripture, people get initially 
upset, or not upset, but just, oh no, not again, not the 23rd Psalm. And I have discovered that it is in the familiar, as the Spirit of God freshens the familiar, so often that God does something really deep in our heart. I don't know if you have a system of reading the Bible. I hope you do. We all need a system, depending on the way that each of us learn. But often in the system that I use, I come to a very familiar part in the Scriptures. And if it is, for example, Psalm 23, I think, oh, I know this. In fact, I've written a book about that, and I've spoken all over the world about that. And what, what, what can, you know, it's sort of old hat. Maybe I should go to Malachi or somewhere like that that's clean part of my script Bible, you know. Um, and I have learned over a long time of knowing Jesus not to do that. In the 23rd Psalm, there is a verse that says, he'll lead us to green pastures. These are the green pastures, folks. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. Okay. And he will lead us to green pastures. And I have learned in the most familiar green pastures, probably Psalm 23 is one of those places, that God's grass grows overnight. And I found a little piece of spiritual nourishment in the corner of a verse in the most familiar pastures. And God knows just when I need it and why and how. And when I come back, there'll always be something fresh it says in the New Testament that a New Testament scribe brings out of his treasure things that are familiar and things that are fresh, new and old. And the words actually mean familiar and fresh. And God's Spirit freshens the familiar. And so as we come to whatever past of Scripture that whoever is up here sharing with us, preaching, teaching, exhorting, whatever it is, through music, through testimony, through teaching, whatever, preaching, proclaiming. Remember that however familiar it is, get excited. Say to your heart, heart, sit down, listen. Open your mind and pray, God, freshen the familiar. So listen with those sort of expectant ears as I remind you of a very familiar, beloved psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores or replenishes my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, not maybe, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In many, many years of church, I've observed that this is the psalm that is used at funerals. Mostly used at funerals. What a shame. For this psalm is not only for one verse, 
though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, used for funerals, and quite rightly, and that's fine. It is for life. This is for life. And the secret of it lies between the first and the last verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the end of it. And all the psalm is about now, is about tomorrow, and all your tomorrows, and all my tomorrows, and actually all my past that has gone, that I can do nothing about. It's about life. Life. Yes, it is. The Lord is my shepherd, says David. Now, David knew a lot about sheep. He grew up without boys and girls to play with, just himself and the sheep, and the lions and the bears, of course, and all of that stuff. But he grew up alone, as a teenager, alone. Never did anything teenagers did. He kept the sheep, but he grew up And all he had to do was look up at the sky and say, oh, the work of your fingers. Just finger work. What am I? And he saw in nature the invisible things of God that are clearly seen, as it says in the book of Romans. The invisible things in the cathedral out there, God's cathedral that we drove through today as we came here. That's God's cathedral. God showed David the invisible qualities that made him look up and wonder and learn God. And he knew God so well as a teenager that he killed a giant, remember? That's what will make us giant killers. If we see God in nature, and of course if we see God in Christ, if we see God in God's children, if we see God in covenant, These are all the ways he reveals himself to us. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, the personal name of God he uses here. L is creator, E-L. L-O-R-D, capital L, is the personal name of God. God leaned out of heaven and said to Jacob, who was asleep once, in a dream, look at me. And in his dream, he looked up, and there was a ladder up to heaven and someone up there sitting on a throne, angels coming up and down. And God said, I'll tell you my name, Jacob. I am Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name of God. Not just El, the creator that threw it all out there and left it, but that became personally involved with the world and the people that he made in it. The Lord is my shepherd, said David. He's mine, and I am his forever. The Lord is my shepherd. Have you ever come to the place of saying the Lord is my shepherd? Mine. This is a true story, and I found it, actually, in a book of illustrations. I was very excited in a seminary library, so it has been recorded. This man, the story is about, is a friend of my husband's in... uh, England, UK, growing up, and he became a child evangelist. I I don't mean he was a child and an evangelist, an evangelism (laughs) among children. And he used to go to the little villages in the uh, Lake District where my husband comes up, and all over England, actually, and set up a little tent and have children's meetings. 
And one time, somebody in the winter asked him to go to Scotland, to a pretty wild, isolated place in the winter. And he went, and it was a pretty hard journey that he eventually got up there and to a little kirk, they call them, not church. And there was a vicar there, a church, of, a church of Scotland, who had invited him. And as he went past a field, he saw a shepherd, just a shepherd boy, probably 12 or 13 years of age. And he stopped the car and he said, young man, come here. I've come because I'm coming to your church and I'm going to talk about all sorts of things about Jesus and uh, I, I hope you can come. Can you get somebody to look after your sheep and come? And somehow the young man managed one day to come. And our friend was teaching the gospel through this uh, psalm all week uh, by holding up his hand and saying, The Lord is my shepherd. And he took thee, the only one, the God of gods, Lord of lords, right. Lord, he explained that, is. He is. He isn't a was. He isn't a shall be. He isn't just there before I am formed in the womb, as it says in Psalm 139. He will not just be there when I meet him at the end of my life, face to face. He is in my past. He's here. He's there. He is. He doesn't say I was, I will be. He says, I am. I am. The Lord is my shepherd. And when he got to the my, he talked about how each one of us must recognize this. And invite him to be my personal shepherd. And he said, if you want to do that, children, do this. Just get hold of your finger as I'm talking. My, I'm going to say that. Well, he did his meetings. He went home. And about four months later, in the middle of winter, there was a terrible storm. And uh, the young shepherd boy was trying to find all his sheep. And the snow in Scotland can get rise up to here. And he was trying to find them before there was too many snow drifts. And uh, apparently he lost his way, his own way. And like many of his sheep, he was found the next two days frozen to death. But he was doing this, apparently, for our friend called, the, uh, the pastor called our friend, the evangelist, and said, I have some bad news. And he told him about the death of this little shepherd boy. And he said, can you explain something? When they found him, he was doing this. He's mine. He's mine. When did that happen? Happened to me when I was 18, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> I was a student at Cambridge, without God, without Christ, without hope, child of the Second World War. Many questions. Slept in an arid shelter much of my youth, waiting to be killed by the bombs. I lived in Liverpool, not a good idea. Many questions, no one to answer them. Never went to church. My dad went off for six years into the Air Force. My sister, my mom, and I stayed in England. And so I used to ask her, who's trying to kill us? Who hates us so? What is it? Who are the Germans? Who are the Nazis? Why? And my mom did her best. I can't remember one of her answers, actually, but none of them satisfied me. And then after the war, the questions just kept coming as they found the atrocious camps where thousands and millions of people are being gassed and who are the Jews? Mom, mom, who are the Jews? Well, the Jews are God's people, Jill. Oh, I said. Well, I'm glad I'm not one of them. If that's how he looks after his own. Do you think I didn't have questions? I had lots of questions. Was he? 
I hoped he wasn't because I didn't know if I liked him very much. And if he was, was he just L, created it, threw it into space and said, well, it's your mess, sort it out. I'm not interested. But if he wasn't, if he knew what was going on, what sort of a God was he when he didn't stop it, if he had the power? And so through my teenage years, all of this stuff was going through. And when I got up to Cambridge, I found that's all they were talking about at my university and Harvard and Yale and every other university in the whole world. That's all they were talking about. What was that? What did we just go through? What? Why? Who? We did a little bit of work in between, but down by the Cam River where we did the wonderful schooling along the river and all of this and outside the pubs where we would gather at night. That's all we were talking about. And inside, this girl, 18 years of age, was this huge cry, if only someone would tell me, if only someone would tell me. Why doesn't somebody tell me? Is there anybody that knows the answer to my questions? And one day, somebody put a little booklet in my hand, just a little booklet, questions and answers. A man called C.S. Lewis, professor at Cambridge. It was by him. And apparently, he'd been an atheist, but he'd become an evangelical believer. I didn't understand any of those terms. And he was on the BBC answering questions about his uh, medieval history, which is what he taught at Oxford before he came to Cambridge. And he was a very famous professor before he ever became a Christian. And so he's on the BBC and people are asking him these questions about medieval history. Well, then he gets converted to Jesus. He says, my shepherd is going to be my shepherd. Well, that's conversion. And so everybody that was listening to the BBC, and that was the only radio there was to listen to, said, what does he mean he's, he's been converted? What's that? How, he, he's told us he's an atheist in the middle of all of this medieval history. Then what's, it, what's he talking about God for? And so they began to ask God questions. Somebody wrote them down. Somebody wrote his answers. And somebody in God's economy put it in my hand. 18 years of age, screaming inside, if only someone would tell me. And I remember reading it in my little Cambridge room, alone. I couldn't sit down because he began to answer my questions. I was standing, I was reading, I was going through, I was saying, oh, yes, yes. And I came across a very famous Lewis quote. There is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. Actually, the full quote is, there is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we shall follow our great captain inside. We shall get in. And I said, what door? Death's door? Will I get in? And then again, if only someone would tell me. I didn't address it to God. It wasn't a prayer. And yet I was a prayer, wasn't I? And God read me and heard me. Three weeks later, I got sick, rushed into a hospital, Addenbrooke's Hospital in the middle of Cambridge. And then God's love for me, he put in a ward of 30 women, the only Christian I think I'd ever met in so-called Christian England, a nurse who was sick. Her name was Jenny. And one day she started to tell me about Jesus. Yeah. 
she came to the verse, or brought the verse to me out of context, but it worked, Revelation 3.20. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, woman, boy or girl opens the door, I will come in. And I stopped her. And I said, Jenny, I've heard about the door. She said, have you heard about the door? I said, I read about it. What do you read? I said, there is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. She said, what was the book? I, I said, who wrote it? Lewis? Oh, she said with a knowing little look. And I said, take me through the door, Jenny. Can you take me through the door? And she said, yeah, she did, yeah, she did. I'm just telling you again, all these years later, and the reality of that, it's all real, it's all true, folks. God came into my life. This little sheep found a shepherd, or to be absolutely correct, the shepherd found me and lifted me up in his arms. And I've been following him for years and years and years. And it never fails to overwhelm me every time I tell the story, you know. Yeah, why wouldn't it? My shepherd. Have you done this? Even as I'm talking, you don't need to do it physically, do it in your heart, just where you are. I want you to be my shepherd. If you're not sure, make sure. I'm not sure. Are you my shepherd? I shall not want. What's that mean? I shan't want anything. He's going to kiss every herb better. He's going to give me everything I want. No. Everything I need, yes. Because the things I want, I don't necessarily need. I just think I do sometimes. But what it means is spiritually, everything I need, I shall never lack. I shall never lack anything. I shall never lack any strength I need when I am weak. Peace I need when I'm terrified. Grace I need for forgiveness. Anything I really need for the part of me that's going to live forever. Now, will I lack some things for the tiny little bit of time. If you think of eternity as where I am here, and the line of this as time, you get the perspective. God is here. We are here. You shall not lack anything you need for here. New heaven, new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Forever, ever, ever, you are not going to lack anything you need for that. Now here, when you're living on life after the fall with a sinful nature, there will be things you will lack. Things, but not spiritual things. Riches beyond measure. I come from a very wealthy family. And so it never bothered me when I became a missionary and lived in a way I never dreamt I would live. Because I had lived in a house with a beloved dad 
who, bless his heart, was one of the unhappiest people I knew at his castle. The Salmon River. He'd earned it all. Wasn't given. And my mum used to say, just take the drink to your father and cheer him up. And as a teenager, I'd stand with the drink in my hand looking at my father's body image in this beautiful manor house, gorgeous manor house. And I'd stand there and say, what does he need? Why, why does he need cheering up? Why is my dad, or body language, saying, help me. If only someone would help me. I realized that's what he was saying. Why does he need cheering up? You will not lack anything you really need. And incidentally, I have testified many times all over the world. I have everything I need. And I stopped doing it when I heard Mother Teresa's quote, you cannot say Jesus is all I need until Jesus is all you've got. I stopped saying Jesus is all I need from platforms years and years ago. I don't know, because I've never been like she was when Jesus was all I got. I've never been like people I have now met in my work with World Relief in Cambodia and the Killing Fields and places that I've been with, with Lauren and Lisa when Jesus is all the Christians have, literally sitting on dung heaps in the Philippines. And they have said to me, Jesus is all I've got, and Jesus is all they've got. And I have looked at their face and say, you have the right to say that. I don't, because I've never been there. But my sisters and brothers all over the world have, and I listen to them. I sit at their feet, and I believe, because I look at their face, and I listen to their words, and I see their transformed lives. And it's all true, folks. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He will replenish us through helping us lie down in green pastures. Sheep never lie down until their stomach's full. Did you know that? Stuart and I served a youth mission in a big castle in the Lake District for 11 years before we came to America for disadvantaged youth and for ordinary youth in Europe, for ex-Nazi youth after the war. It's been an interesting journey with that particular mission. And we're surrounded by sheep. Major Ian Thomas bought this castle when he'd finished with the war and uh, brought German youth after the war. And that's how it began, as an English mission to German, ex-German youth. And uh, sheep, yeah, it was wonderful. So we learned a lot about sheep. And the farmers that were helping us farm those animals that we inherited with the castle in that youth work taught me so much about sheep. They said, now, when you see a sheep lying down, it only ever lies down when its stomach's full, even though even when it's lying down, it's munching around it. <laughs> Is that a picture of you and me? When we spend time with the shepherd, are we lying on our backs with a little paws? Oh, I, I, I can't take any more. Or when you read your Bible, Miss, it, be honest. Was it worth it? Can you not... Wait until the time is up and you've done your reading. Hey! Or do you step into his present presence and never want to get above your knees? When was the last time that happened? As you've drank by the waters, by those wonderful waters. 
prayer. Just, as I put it, sitting on the steps of your soul in the deep place where nobody goes and talking. What happens when you and the shepherd are by the still waters in the green pastures? I caught one of my conversations sitting on the steps of my soul. I ran to the deep place where nobody goes and I found him waiting there. Where have you been? He asked me. Well, I've been in the shallow place where everyone lives. I knew he knew. He just wanted me to admit I'd been too busy being busy. I'm running out, I began. Well, of course, he said. I haven't seen you in a while. And he touched my hurried heart. Startled. It skittered to a near stop. Angels sang. Shaft of light chased away the shadows and brightened my daily day, and I smiled back. I'm such a fool. Shh, he said, putting his finger on my lips. And he sat down, and my spirit nestled into nearness in the deep place where nobody goes. And my soul spoke then, and he answered with words beyond music. Where on earth had I been while heaven waited? Such grace. That's what I'm talking about. The still waters, the green pastures. And from that time, we will know where to go and what to do. The decisions that are needed to make for our shepherd will lead us from out of the relationship with him. We can go to him with every dilemma that there is in life and find a warning to heed or a command to obey or a promise to claim. We will find something to show us the way. It will not be specific. It will be principle. Let me illustrate that for you. For the shepherd leads us in the right paths that he wants us to go through life. Do you have a dilemma? Do you have decisions to make? How do you and God talk about that? How does he talk to you from this book that was written 2,000 years ago? How are we to discern his voice in the context and apply it to 2,000 years later? Because that's what we're meant to do. How does that happen? When, uh, before I ever met Stuart, I ended up teaching in the back end of Liverpool uh, in the red light district, just around the corner from the cabin where the Beatles were playing. There were 17 or so. Nobody knew who they'd be at that point. And so here I am in Liverpool, uh, out of my context with, with disadvantaged children in my classroom. And uh, as I am trying to cope with them and not doing a very good job uh, in the classroom. Um, they began to come to the Lord. I spent time after school. I just got back on the bus in my beautiful home. We had a home in Liverpool as well, in the suburbs. And I went down after school, looked for my kids, and just started hanging around with them. You know, if people don't like you, they won't listen to you. Have you noticed? I don't listen to people I don't like, and nor does anybody else. And they didn't like me. I had absolutely nothing I could relate to them. 
I am like a woman from another planet to the kids in my classroom. But I had one thing. I had the love of God in my heart. And so I went looking, and I just hung around. First they were suspicious. What are you doing here, miss? Just want to see what you did after school. Anybody want me to buy them coffee? Coffee bars were just coming in. You paying? Yeah, I'm paying. Oh, okay. I don't know how long it took, three months, three times a week, just hanging out, hanging out, hanging out. And one day Trevor, leader of one of the gangs, said to me, yeah, you come in tomorrow night, miss. Are you going to be here? And I said, yes, I'll be here, Trevor. And he began to open his heart about what was happening at home. And he came to the Lord, and his friends came to the Lord, and they came to the Lord, and I ended up as a very new Christian with about 30 of these kids. I had no idea what to do with them. And one day, Trevor says, Will you come into the pub with us, miss? I've, I've been trying to tell me friends what you're saying about Jesus, and, and I don't know the answers, but I said you did, and maybe if you would come into the pub with me tonight and, and talk to me friends. And I began to struggle with that. Somehow it was all right for me to choose where I went. But I began to struggle all sorts of ways. And one of the ways I was struggling with was, well, if people see me, if my headmaster sees me, or if my church people see me going into this place, they won't understand why I'm going in, and, and I don't really know if I want to go in there anyway. So what do I do? Shepherd, what do I do about going into the pub? And I began to hang my heart over, and my habit is to read until I find a principle. It is not going to say, go into the pub with Trevor, I'm looking for a principle. And I can't remember how long it was, two weeks before I found it. I was in Philippians, started reading at the Gospels and doing my reading, but all the time that is on a page of my Bible. What about this request that these kids are beginning to make? Will you come into our places with us? And what about that? And I came to Philippians 2, where Jesus makes that great graph of place of... of, of grace from heaven's glory to lowest hell and he steps down and down and down and down and it says he made himself of no reputation and that was it what was I doing worrying about mine and that's what I wrote in my bible and the next night I went into the pub with Trevor and my whole world changed I probably wouldn't be here tonight if I hadn't gone into the pub with Trevor and so began a street ministry. I didn't know that's what it was called. I was a very young Christian. And God began to work, and more and more and more and more of these kids came to Christ. But you see, I was guided by a principle. And that's what the shepherd does. How exciting! How can it not be that we are spending all our spare time here, folks, in the green pastures, by the still waters? What an exciting life. And even when it gets tough, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even there, his rod and his staff comfort us. It's a funny verse. Do you know what the shepherd does with his rod? He pokes the sheep when it's going in the wrong direction. Ooh, it hurts. Ooh. That's love. 
spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Pope says, no, 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 you're going to go over the head. And his staff, when we won't listen, even though he's poking us and prodding us in our conscience, sometimes he uses that hook on the end of his staff, right? And he gets it in our little wool and he yanks us out. And that hurts too sometimes. And sometimes when he climbs up and we've got ourselves in a whole mess and we're on a ledge and we're going to fall off and we're done and we've destroyed our lives, he'll come as near as he can and he'll save us. He'll save us. His rod and his staff strangely comfort us. And where worse to be than facing death? I am a pastor's wife. I am a missionary wife. I cannot tell you the times I have had the privilege of sitting before people, as Spurgeon would describe them, sitting in the suburbs of the New Jerusalem, about to go through the front door. What a lesson, watching people die and how. And watching Jesus' lovers and glory givers, little sheep who followed the shepherd, even perhaps for a week, I do prison work, just before they're executed. Or little sheep that have followed people all their lives. It's quite an education when the time comes in the valley of the shadow. And I always sit there and I always think one of the same things or one thing every time. How do people do this without Jesus? How do people do the dying? It, it isn't what's after it I'm frightened of. I'm frightened of the process of getting there, right? And I should be. It's horrible. That's why Jesus died. That's how bad it is to do in death forever. The process of dying is horrible. Terrible. Yes, it is. What's after is fine. I was in the air, which I shouldn't have been, or I should have been. I was trying to get back here on 9-11. So I was one of those 13,000 people that got taken in the jet to Gander, Newfoundland, and abode on a Salvation Army pew in Gambo for six and a half days before I got back. But when the pilot came on and said, all the airspace is closed, all the borders are closed, and I can't tell you why until I get you down. My heart began to go like everybody else's, and we all did the same thing. We all dived for that thing you never read in the front. <laughs> the emergency thing. You know, when you're a frequent flyer like me, you, yeah, take it out and read it. Yeah, 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 you know, looking at the newspaper, right? Not on 9-11. All of us, me too. I dived and started practicing, you know. <laughs> and there was a rustle, and everybody's very interesting when things like this happen. And there was a horrible noise, which convinced me the airplane was going down. I'd never heard it before. I was sitting by a young doctor, Stuart had put me on the plane, gone on to India, I think, or somewhere. And this young doctor, I said, what do you think? He said, I think we're going down. I said, I do too. I've never heard that noise. Have you heard that noise? No, I've never heard that noise. Well, what he was doing was emptying the gas into the ocean. 
because he had to get down. And uh, I didn't believe him, he didn't believe him. And so, not the first time in my life, but in very reality, the most convincing time in my life, I believed I was going to die. Okay. I was not expecting to. It was not on my agenda that day. I had lots to do, places to go, people to meet. And suddenly I'm faced with this. My Bible is up above me because I hadn't thought to carry it on my lap. I've never done that since this, incidentally. I've always kept it with me. So I couldn't get up and start and look for a verse about planes going down and things like that, what to do. And my heart was beating like crazy. And so I rushed to the steps of my soul in the deep place where nobody goes, you know. And I began to have this conversation. And I said, and I confess to you, dear Lord, you know I love you dearly. You know I love you dearly, but I wasn't expecting to see you today. <laughs> Do you know how I am ashamed I am to tell you that? How can this be? I didn't want to die. And as we talked a bit, I believe I heard him smile and say, I didn't make you to die, I made you to live, so I understand nobody should want to die, Jill, but let's try and do a little bit better next time. <laughs> I know I heard that bit. <laughs> and I managed to do a bit better for the next six and a half days. In fact, there were six and a half the most amazing days of my life. Yeah, you never know. But if I can have those qualms, if other people can have those qualms, facing the biggest enemy, the last enemy is death. You're going to need a shepherd. And listen, the valley of the shadow of death. Where there's a shadow, there's always light, right? A little bit. You can't have shadow without a light. And I know because I've watched it. I know because I've been there a few times, facing what I think is my last moment, just a few times. There was light. There was a whole lot of shadow. There was a whole lot of blackness, and there will be. But where there's a shadow, there's always light. And the light is his present presence, his thereness. Do you know the thereness of God? The thereness of God. That's the light. I am the light, he says. Yeah? He is. And he was for me. And he will be when my turn comes, when your turn comes. There is no valley totally dark for the sheep that belong to the shepherd. And goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. And one day we shall dwell in the heavenly fold. New heavens, new earth, wherein dwells righteousness with our shepherd forever. When healing oil was needed for wounds within my soul, when battered, roar, and bleeding I needed to be whole, when enemies surrounded me and all I knew was fear, my shepherd came and found me and whispered, I am here. 
He lifts me on his shoulder and laughs in fear's face. He carries me through danger, and all I know is grace. Then gently puts me down again, though enemies abound. He tells me I am dear to him, for I am the sheep he found. He leads me to green pastures and rests me by cool streams. He lays a table for me within my darkest dreams. The nourishment is such that when it's time to follow on, I gladly face tomorrow, for all my fears are gone. So when I cannot thank him for all that's come to pass, I'll feast within the wilderness. He lays a table before me. When I cannot thank him for all that's come to pass, I'll feast within the wilderness and wait for greener grass. When I can't praise for what's been done, I lift my voice out loud and praise my Lord for who he is in what he has allowed. Listen to those two verses. When I can't praise for what's been done, I lift my voice out loud and praise my Lord for who he is in what he has allowed. My present shepherd. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Praise who he is, my shepherd dear, who gave his life for me, who was led and fed and raised the dead to live in victory, whose rod and staff have saved me from all my sinfulness. He'll wipe the tear, be ever near, in glories, everness. When I can't praise for what's been done. I'll praise him for who he is and what he's allowed. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, shepherd dear, how can this be that you would, you would come and find, find me and lift me and put you on my shoulder and take me home? First home to your heart and eventually home to your home. Your home. You'd said it, Lord, in John chapter 14. You're going to come home to my house, Jill. You're going to come home to my house. In my house are many rooms. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I pray with all my sisters and brothers here in this place, as we have sat and thought again about a very familiar passage of Scripture. Oh, dear shepherd, thank you for coming. Down, 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 for making yourself of no reputation. For me. Thank you all over again, that there was a day when I said, the Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. Can you thank him just sitting there for that day again? Just get hold of that finger. My shepherd. Thank you, Lord. Pray that we may follow you so close we almost trip you up. Keep us near you. Forgive us the foolishness of our ways. Those things that as little sheep we do, look for greener grass when we don't need to, and all of that stuff, forgive us. Teach us how to so love you and so serve you 
it becomes the leading principle of our life, the power to be what you want us to be, and a blessing to our world. Until one day, we'll be in Evanus with you. Thank you, Lord, for being here, right here, right now. Thank you.